0: Genesis, Exodus, open your Bibles, and many of you have never done this, to the book of Leviticus. I would love to know how many people have ever studied Leviticus in church or ever read it on their own. Um, It's the third of the five books of Moses, the Jews would call the Law, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Christians call it the Old Testament. Do you know what Jesus called it? The Word of God. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There was no New Testament when Jesus said it. Obviously, it would include that. But when Jesus said that the words that proceed from the mouth of God, this was the Old Testament and, you know, many times the five books of Moses. Uh, You might be surprised. There are more direct words from the mouth of God in the book of Leviticus than any book in the Bible. So I'm going to try and whet your appetite to get excited about this book, we'll only be here for three weeks. We're in a series called Relevant. Uh, In one year, we're gonna take you from Genesis to Malachi, all 39 books of the Old Testament. It's kinda like a jet tour. We're not looking at every chapter or every verse, so don't be a Pharisee in that area. Uh, We wanna give you a foundation of the Old Testament. Uh, Last week, I was so blessed by Ken Ham. I, I hope you were too. Ken has given his life to the study of God's word and standing on its validity and uh, uh, its literal interpretation, especially the book of Genesis. And it was so cool to watch Ken take all the hot button issues that have divided our nation and really tell us that all you need to know is Genesis one to 11. And after the service I said, look Ken, you gotta slide that to chapter 12, cause that's, that's Israel. And you'll be able to answer every single question. Um, and just to watch him lay that foundation was beautiful. And while Ken was speaking about how we become a post-Christian nation, he, he was using a Barna study that we're sliding away from even knowing anything about the Bible. I thought back to almost 20 years ago when I had looked at a similar Barna study. In this Barna study, they wanted to look at literacy uh, in the U.S. population, Bible literacy among just general people. So they just... General people you know, they didn't know who was Christian Jewish or whatever, and they asked a series of questions and uh, I thought it was quite humorous. The first question was a setup. They asked people who Noah's wife was. Now, it's really a trick question, right? Like Lot's wife and Joe's wife, she's not named, so I thought that was, that was a little sneaky. You believe 12% of the people said that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc? I mean, my gosh, you don't even have the right epics of history there. They asked them what the epistles were. That's the New Testament letters. I thought this was pretty clever. They said it was the wives of the apostles. Kind of interesting. Stupid, but interesting. Uh, they asked people to name one of the Ten Commandments. Think about this just one. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Uh, you know what? The predominant answer was God helps those who help themselves. Hard to believe. Most people couldn't name one disciple of Jesus. You, you would think Judas, right? You think everybody's heard of Judas. And yet most people surveyed could name two of the four beetles, not the insects, but the rock group, unbelievable. And when I look at studies like that and when I hear Ken speak, I'm just so thankful uh, that for all these years that the Bible's been open to me, I hope you feel that way. For the first 20 years of my life, I never read this book. It was like a dusty book on a shelf somewhere. I don't even think we had it on our shelf in my home. And I've had the privilege not only now to read the word of God, but to teach the word of God. And what really stands out to me is in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and it's powerful. It's not just a book, it's a person, it's Jesus. John 1 tells us that, that Jesus is the word. And when I sit with God's word, it's powerful, it's alive, it's cutting, it's cathartic, it's moving, it's inspiring. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and joint and marrow, it's the discerner of the thoughts of my heart and of my mind. And it sets me on a course, and it gives me communion with God. So as we begin this book of Exodus, I pray that you would love God's word even more. Now, I'm not naive. I I know Christians don't read the Bible like they should. I know, again, most of you maybe have never read Leviticus. So we're gonna be here three weeks, and I wanna kinda whet your appetite And I've already told you there's more direct words from God here than any book of the Bible. Now, that's important because Hebrews 1 says that God speaks, right? Uh, We long to hear the word of God. And today in the prophetic world, people always want to hear God's voice, constantly. And yet, we've got 66 books of the Bible where God speaks. And so many times, God speaks in that still small voice. But here, we have the direct words of God. Uh, Second reason is the Hebrew name. Whenever we start a book of the Bible in the Old Testament, most of the names of these books have been turned into Greek. So Leviticus means these are instructions to the priests, to the Levites, the sons of Aaron. The Hebrew word is vayikra, which means the Lord called. So the Lord called these men to the priesthood. But the New Testament says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. So in many ways, God has called each and every one of us. So we're going to see our calling in Leviticus. And number three, this is the Bible Jesus knew, loved, and read. Uh, I've already talked about that. But, but when you get Leviticus under your belt, you'll understand more of the New Testament. So you open up the pages of the New Testament, and all of a sudden, you see Jesus healing lepers. The leprosy was a, get this, 4,000-year pandemic. And this isn't where you got like the sniffles or the flu. This is like your limbs would fall off. I think most of you know about leprosy. Uh, But we know very little about leprosy or why Jesus healed him or why he said, go show yourself to the priest. We're going to find that out at Leviticus. We're going to find out why the Pharisees came against Jesus because of the Sabbath day or eating kosher or uh, being clean. All these things that are new to us in the New Testament are all here in Leviticus. You'll understand the book of Hebrews more. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation will make sense. Uh, The fourth reason why we wanna study Leviticus is, and I'm not putting you on, my favorite Bible study of all time is here. Leviticus 23 gives us the feasts of Israel. Uh, One of the great gifts that God gave his people, the Jews, was their calendar. Aren't you guys thankful for a calendar? Uh, think about it, like we go through a year and we have Christmas and New Year's and Easter and today's almost a holiday, right? The Super Bowl, right? Gets us through the winter. Well, God gave Israel a calendar. It was a rhythm of life, but these feasts spoke of Jesus that was coming and then he, how he would fulfill all these feasts and there's still three yet to be fulfilled. It's gonna be a fantastic study. Uh, if you're kind of a nerd and you're in the tedium, Uh, There's a lot of laws in Leviticus that form what we call natural law. Things you would wonder, why in the world are they even in the Bible? Well, they're in the Bible because this was a civil law. God was teaching them how to live and to be separate from all other nations. And be separate from disease and things of that nature. Uh, We'll talk about what it means to be kosher um, and many, many other things. The great Oswald Chambers said, if you read the book of Psalms, you'll learn how to pray. If you read the book of Job, you'll learn what it means to suffer. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll learn what it means to have fun in life. If you read the book of Leviticus, you're going to find out what holiness means. Because God is holy. Eighty times in this book, it uses the word holy or holiness. This is what God desires of us. Holiness is the supreme attribute of God. God is love, but in Isaiah, the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's what sets him apart. His purity, his moral excellence, his pristine judgment. And aren't we drawn to this in life? Isn't there something about us in human beings where we want this out of other people? We, We long for this purity in some form of relationship. This is why we want heroes. This is why we want people that we put on a pedestal to be authentic, Whether it's Mr. Rogers or Greg Brady or Billy Graham or the Pope or some other figure, we're drawn to this. I was golfing in the fall and got into politics and golfing with some men I didn't know and really didn't want to go there. And finally, the guy was ready to tee off and he said, look, he goes, I just want to, I just want it to end. I want to stop the idea that I'm being lied to. And I'm like, (laughs) I almost belly left. I'm like, well, you think the other guy doesn't lie? Like, you've never heard the saying, when is a politician lying? When his lips are moving? Like, come on. The world's built on lies. But we still long for that one person who's pure. And that's why I think Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's saying, "If, if you're looking at me, I'm gonna let you down. I feel the same way. Sooner or later, I'm going to let people down. And so we're pointing people to the one who will never let us down. God's moral excellence, his moral character, it's what defines him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? Exodus chapter 15. Holiness is the essence of who God is. And we're going to learn about his holiness. So let's read Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord called to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. We'll explain what that is. Saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of the livestock of the herd of your flock. If this offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he, the offerer, shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him, that uh, there's a transfer of sin to the animal 40 times in Leviticus, that phrase is used. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all round on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head, the fat in order of the wood that is on the fire, and on the altar. Skip down the verse eleven. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Uh, verse 14 talks about it, the sacrifice uh, is to be of birds or turtle doves, uh, what the priest should do. And then finally, the chapter ends, verse 17, says, Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a sacrifice made by fire, Here's the key verse, this is a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Now, if you gave Leviticus a try, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I just read one whole chapter. What does this have to do with my life, my marriage, my finances? You know, I got to get up in the morning, I got a busy day. How in the world can this help me? And one of the things I want to share with you is, you and I, living in the new covenant, we live in the reality, you all know that, right? Right? Paul wrote that to the Colossians. We are living in the reality. Uh, Folks that lived before Jesus were longing to see the things that we see. Uh, People like Anna and Simeon would walk around the temple and wonder what God was up to. Even the angels longed to look into this idea of grace. The prophets, they could never figure out what's coming. They were looking at types and shadows. We've come into the fullness, a new and a living way the Bible talks about But there's a beauty for you and I to look backwards and to see what God was doing in picture form. So here we have instructions on animal sacrifice. You've heard about animal sacrifice your whole life. When God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, there was something that Moses had in his back pocket that most people didn't know, and that was blueprints for a tabernacle. Now, when we hear a tabernacle, we think of Jerusalem and the temple It was one of the wonders of the world, and Jews would come from all over, and they would sacrifice there. But God started with a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, because God knew in the wilderness they would wander for 40 years. When we get to the book of Numbers, it was only an 11-day journey from Sinai into Canaan, but it would take 40 years for them to get there, and our lesson's gonna be, never let an 11-day journey take us 40 years. So God prescribed a tabernacle. and In Exodus 25.8, he tells us why. He said, let them make me a sanctuary. By the way, that word is a home, not what we have right here. Here's why. That I might dwell among them. Isn't that beautiful? When we think of temples and churches and altars, we think it's, you know, the house of God, it's holy, it's special. Well, in some ways it really is. Now again, we live in the full reality. I'll get to that in a minute. But God said, you're all going to have homes and I want to build a home and I want it to be right in the middle of all of you. Now we all know God doesn't need a house, right? Solomon prayed that in his prayer, God, the heavens of the heavens can't contain you. And yet God said he would dwell with us. So we'll give you a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, You've seen many of these pictures. We'll leave it up there for a while. Uh, Let me tell you a few things about the tabernacle. Uh, First thing, and and again, this is really quick, but it gets into detail here. God wanted it in the center of the camp. He wanted everybody to be equidistant from where he would dwell. And this would be God's home. In many ways, God's home looked like all the other homes. It was just a lot larger, but it was in the center. So I grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, I guess if you grew up in New York or Chicago or Boston, it was similar. If you meet anybody from Philadelphia, I was traveling this week, and I met a guy who grew up in Philadelphia. You asked three questions. After you get to know the person, you say, hey, what nationality are you? Because we all lived in these little pockets of Irish, Jewish, uh, African-American, Polish, right? So you always ask the nationality. Uh, the second question you ask is, where are you from? Which is really strange, right? Because we're all from Philadelphia. Yeah, but I lived in Fox Chase. there's Somerdale, there's Maniunk, there's West Philly, North Philly. So even though that's not our address, we all lived in those places. And then if you're Catholic, you know where this is going. You always ask what parish you're from. St. Cecilia, St. William, St. Peter and Paul. And, and then in your mind, you know so much about this person. The word parish means around the corner, and that's exactly where our churches were. Uh, We walked there. We were there six days a week. I went to Catholic school. That's five days. You went to church on Sunday. Uh, That's where your parents played bingo, and there were raffles and carnivals, and, and there was just a sense of security that this place existed, and in many ways, God said, that's where I want to be, right in the middle. A few weeks ago, I drew you that circle and said, when God is the center of your life, everything else makes sense. Your marriage makes sense. Your calling in life makes sense. You put anything else in the middle, it kind of goes sideways, right? And listen, God wanted to remind them who they were. Every day you'd wake up, you'd see the smoke rising from the sacrifice. You could see the tabernacle was larger, and it reminded you of who you are kind of like when you're driving down the highway and you see a cop car, it reminds you of who you should be, right? So this is what God was doing. He wanted to dwell in the midst of them. And of course, John 1 says, Jesus became flesh, the word became flesh. And what did he do? He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. Sinners, tax collectors, human beings. God so loved the world. The second thing about the tabernacle is it was portable, now, this was unique to Israel. For the first time, God would be portable. So in the exile, when Daniel finds himself in Babylon, he doesn't need an idol. He doesn't need something in his pocket, something around his neck to remind him of God. God is in his heart. God has written his laws on his mind and his heart. He, he, he turns towards Jerusalem to pray three times a day because that was the place of the sacrifice. It was a place of meaning. But as the Jews would be scattered all over the world, they would take God with them. And they would thrive in every nation. And you've seen all the movies, you've read all the books. This little people group has remained intact for all time because God was teaching them that he was portable. This was training wheels for them. For 40 years, they'd be reminded that God was in their midst so that wherever they would go, They would know he was in their hearts. Now, in that picture, um, we see the outer court, okay? There's that large gathering area, which was like maybe a half of a football field. When the temple was built in Jerusalem, the outer court could hold almost 100,000 people. And so you would walk into the outer court and there'd be two pieces of furnishing. And by the way, all the furnishing, everything of the tabernacle points to Jesus, and we don't have the time to go in that detail. There was a laver. There was a washing place. So the priest would come in, and he would wash, right? Today, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed by the water of the Word. And then there was the brazen altar. You can see uh, there's actually a picture of my daughter Carly and me in Israel. Uh, that is a life sized tabernacle down in the Sinai, and that's about the size of the brazen altar. Notice the four horns there. And so you'd have to get an animal up there, you'd have to slay it. Uh, Everything we just read in the burnt offering in chapter one. And this was a sweet aroma unto God. And the burnt offering was the only offering, listen to this, everything was consumed. Everything was consumed. In our day, we take sin very lightly, right? So today, no one really sins. They've had a moral failure. They've done something wrong. They can be rehabilitated. We don't look at sin for what it really is. Now, the Bible, in graphic detail next week, will show us that sin was like leprosy. It destroys at a deep level. But can you imagine going into the temple with your offering, and you would kill that offering, and they would take the blood and put it around the altar, and then the fire would consume every last bit of that sacrifice. I don't think as a worshiper you could leave there without a deep, deep understanding of what sin does. That this sinless animal who had done nothing wrong because of my guilt and my sin isn't completely annihilated. And this was a picture that God was giving to his people, that sin is devastating. Years ago, I went to a movie called Spotlight. Many of you may have seen it. Um, It was about an investigation team for the Boston Globe that got into uh, the sexual misconduct of priests, not only in that area, but in the East Coast. And I'm not putting down the Catholic Church or priests. I mean, this kind of stuff has happened all over the place. And... um, I remember going into the movie thinking, the Catholic Church had been sued for millions and millions of dollars, and I thought the people suing them, it was a money grab, until I watched the movie and realized that half the people never lived to sue. Uh, Many of them committed suicide, and the ones that didn't were just messed up for life. And it's kind of an insight to what sin does, how it cuts deep and it ruins lives. And God was trying to show, this is what it does. This animal has done nothing wrong, just completely annihilated. It also showed the level of God's forgiveness, right? That when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wasn't mamondese, right? He didn't come to give us pithy sayings. He came to be consumed in its fullness. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew his whole life, whenever he saw a lamb being sacrificed, he knew that's what would happen on the cross. And so over and over again, we get these pictures. Now, look back at the picture of Carly and me. You'll see four horns at the altar. Uh, Anybody know why those four horns are there? Yeah, because no animal wants to get up on the altar. They're not stupid. They know what's coming. And so you would take ropes and tie it to their legs and tie it to those horns, and then you could do what you had to do. The book of Hebrews in Romans 12 says that as believers, you and I, that we now offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. God doesn't want bulls and goats and turtle doves and pigeons anymore. He wants you. He wants your heart. See, your heart now is his home. Jesus said in Revelation, I knock at the door, and if anybody opens, I'll come in and, listen, dine with him. I'll make my abode there. This will be my home. And now we come willingly. Now, I know sometimes we're kicking and screaming, and God's called us to do things, and we don't want to do it. But now we come willingly, and we come to this altar. So my YouTube feed like yours... Gives me all the things that I like to see now, right? And a few days ago, uh, I got a feed of a Larry King interview where he had John MacArthur, a Catholic priest, a rabbi, a new age person, a Muslim. He had about seven people on a panel. And he starts with John MacArthur. He says, John, what happens after you die? And then he goes down the list. And then his second question was, he said, well, the only reason religion exists is because we die. If we didn't die, there'd be no religion. And everybody tried their hand at answering it and I thought, what a sad, sad testimony. I accepted Christ at 21 years old. I wasn't even thinking about death. I was longing for truth, I was longing for love. I was longing for this purity for to be known that the person who created me and that I could know. And so Leviticus, God is is teaching a nation, this is how to live in all its fullness. This is what Adam was meant to live by. We're not doing all this because we fear death. We're willingly, 20 years old, willingly, I got up on an altar and said, God, here's all my plans. Here's all my dreams. Take it and do with it what you will. All because of Christ. Chapter two is the grain offering. The next chapter, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all the way, chapters one through seven. My favorite offering is the free will offering. This is where nothing was required, right? It's not like a tithe where God wants 10% or this is for the priest. A free will offering is where the offerer would just give something to God because God, you're awesome. And the offering had no value. The priest wouldn't take some of it. I mean, it was just... It was just, man, I love you, God. Now, next Sunday's Valentine's Day, right? That's mandatory, guys. That's mandatory, okay? Uh, But can you imagine on any day of the week, coming home and your girlfriend or your husband or whatever, wife, just, what do we normally bring, right? Flowers. Flowers have no use. I mean, they look pretty for a couple days. They have no intrinsic value like a coffee maker or something like that. When you give somebody flowers, it's I love you. That's what a free will offering to God is. I read this and I thought, when was the last time I gave God a free will offering? Not a response to a ministry or somebody's going to build something for the kingdom. Just just went out and lavishly blessed somebody because I wanted to thank God for all he's done for me. And I kind of made myself a mental note that I'm going to look for opportunities to just give God an offering sometime. Leviticus shows us there's a God who longs to bless us. There's a God of purity. Take sex, for example. People think God's against sex. How could he be against sex? He created it. But yet God's saying there is a purity in the sexual relationship. That if done according to my plan, it has beauty and value and love and reproduction. But if you take it outside of my boundaries, it has all these damaging effects. Christians live at such a lower level than the purity God has prescribed for us. Now we get through all the offerings and we get to chapter 9. And finally it's time for Aaron and Moses to go into the Holy Holies. This is the inner court. And I think you know what was in the inner court. There was a table of showbread, right, where they would put this amazing bread. I would have been a Levite, by the way, in those days, because I love bread and meat. So I would have had it made. Jesus, of course, the bread of life. There was the candle that was burning in there, right, the light of the world. And then in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant have a picture for you there. Uh, this is what Indiana Jones was after, right? This is what, I mean, if anybody ever found the Ark of the Covenant, it'd be the greatest find in all of history. It was a wooden chest overlaid of gold. If you go through all the detail in the Bible, speaks of Christ. It has turban covering on either side. And once a year, the high priest would go in there, only the high priest, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and it would atone for the sins of the nation. Inside was Aaron's rod that, had buds come out of it Uh, the two tablets of the covenant which means god was dwelling there and the manna right it was a reminder of god's faithfulness so if you picture god's house there was an outer court where everybody could come Uh, there was kind of an inner court where only the priests could go and then the holy of holies was like your bedroom at home right Uh, people can go anywhere in my house but don't open the door to my bedroom it's just it's the holy of holies right So once a year, the priest would go in there, and he would make sacrifice for the sins of the nation. So in chapter 9, the time has come. The whole congregation of Israel gathers, millions of people. And Aaron goes in, Moses lays out all the plan on how the sacrifices go. And we read down in chapter 9, verse 22, That Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Watch this. And fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar, which all the people saw. And guess what they did? They shouted, they laughed, I mean, they had church. They whooped it up. If church was like that, we'd come every week, wouldn't we? The glory of the Lord appeared. Fire came down, consumed the offering. Oh my gosh. I've said all my life, 90% of life is showing up. Imagine if you missed church that day. Hey, how was church today? Oh, you're not going to believe it. The fire of God came down. What? And by the way, live stream wouldn't have looked as good. You know what would happen if that happened every week? It would be like the movie Jurassic World, right? First time you see a dinosaur, it's like, wah, ah. And then you need bigger dinosaurs and killing dinosaurs. Like, you, oh, that's a dinosaur. Uh, what times? What times the cafe open? There's something in the heart of man where things get familiar. And so what happens in chapter 10 is a great lesson for us. It says, Nadab and Abihu, verse 1, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane or strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said, <laughs> By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And guess what it says? Aaron didn't say a word. His two sons just died. He never said a word. There's a lot of strange fire in the church today. And I'm not one of those people that goes on crusades, picking on ministries. You know, I I try to buy by what Jesus said, when one day they said, Lord, there's people over there casting out demons, and they they don't do it like we do. And Jesus said, whoever's not against me is for me. And Jesus said, at the end, he's going to take the wheat and the tares, and he's going to divide them. I'm not one of these guys trying to figure out the wheat from the tares now. But I am a pastor, which means I need to feed and protect when it's necessary. There's a lot of strange fire out there today. There's a lot of people in ministry whose motivation is to make a name for themselves, and they know it. To make a lot of money, and they know it. To preach heresy, and they know it. Uh, Some do it, and they don't know it. Again, I'm not going to figure all that out. But I know this chapter is very important. Because God said, for those who stand in my place and represent me, they must be holy. And and if you go through the chapter, uh, Aaron and his sons, they had to to wear special garments. There was cleansing rituals. We don't have time to go into it. Uh, Aaron had to make a sacrifice for himself. Before he could stand in the presence of God. Today, people are trying to call fire down from heaven. You know, we sing these worship songs. God, may your fire fall. If God's fire fell, we'd all run out the door scared to death. And so there's a tendency to see the actual work of God and then the next time to make it happen. And when you do this, you start misleading people. Chuck Smith always said, if you bring people in with blank, that's how you have to keep them. If you bring them in with entertainment, you've got to keep them with entertainment. If you bring them in with, you know, these wild doctrines, you have to keep them with, you always have to keep upping what you're doing. And yet what we all need is the unleashing of the Word of God. And guess what? God's fire still falls. I can tell you how many times sitting in seats like this, where the fire of God fell in my heart, And God said, I want you to do this. I want this to change. I I couldn't even contain my heart beating out of my chest. And yes, there's those wonderful experiences. And I've been there in places where the worship is grand and God is glorified. And yet I know this is temporary. And we can't make it happen. Why did God kill Nadab and Abihu? Because God was setting a standard that I never prescribed this. You go through chapter 10, it says, Aaron did as Moses commanded, as Moses commanded. God never commanded this. Whatever strange fire was, whatever it is, and there's so much conjecture, it was an attempt to fabricate the presence of God. And God kills them. Now think about this. They just had their greatest day. Imagine Moses, you know, He's standing there. The fire falls. He's like, "Yes, this is why I went in the ministry." You know, we took an offering. We built this tabernacle, and it's beautiful. And people meet with God. And you know, he's probably nervous. God going to show up? God going to show up? And God shows up. The fire comes down. And and then the next day, Nadab and Abihu go, and you know, they put strange fire. And you know, you think God would just overlook it, right? Because you want people to remember the good things. No. You know, God's not afraid of scandal. You look at scandal in these large churches and large ministries, you think, oh my gosh, God, what, like, can't you keep that under wraps because your name is you know, going to get black." God doesn't care. God says your sin will find you out. May we never try to duplicate the presence of God. May we never manipulate people. Richard Newhouse was a professor of theology and ethics at Yale. He really nailed the problem with one of the most insightful and famous quotes about our modern religious experience. Where he said, too many times we're teaching that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And Whatever Nadab and Abihu were doing God struck them. Now, I'm sure as time went on, this happened over and over again, and they weren't struck. We come in the New Testament, we see Ananias and Sapphira, right? Uh, they sell a property, and they come in, and they want to look like everybody else, and they said, hey, we sold a property, we're giving all this money to the church. And uh, Peter said, no, nah, that's not really what happened. Uh, you sold a piece of property, you didn't have to, and you got the money and you gave it to the church, you didn't have to, but you lied to men and God, and boom, they died. Now, anybody glad we live in the age of grace? Nobody'd come to church, right? Nobody would come. If you argued your way on the way to church, you crispy critter, right? You'd be gone. So thank God for the age of grace. But in no way does that underscore underscore the purity that God desires in his church. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about, you know, living a sinless, perfected life. I'm talking about authenticity and honesty. This is why Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. He called himself the chief of sinners. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. We humbly present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. The fire of God falls on our hearts and our minds. And the Bible says now we have the aroma of life and the aroma of death to a world that's around us. We serve God because we want to. We're doulos, we're, we're those New Testament slaves where we willingly have let our master brand us as his instrument. His life or ours, and that now he makes his home within us.